This is Fortress on a Hill. Welcome to Episode 2. The major stories we're going to hit today include changes to the VA's policies on service dogs, some interesting things we noticed about the new Secretary of the Army nominee, and some huge developments with Bo Bergdahl and his ongoing court-martial. Now, on with the show. The VA has had a long-standing program to... Um, help guys get dogs and it's but it's only been a pilot program it's never been established into anything more uh, specific and I understand it's it we're talking about a huge endeavor to give every let's just say PTSD medically needed sold um, veteran a dog so I, I can understand them them not wanting to and that made this next headline you know me kind of excited about it um, there's a new bill being pushed in Congress called the puppies Assisting Wounded Service Members Act of 2017, um, and it directs the Secretary of Veterans Affairs to make grants to eligible organizations for service dogs for two veterans with post-traumatic stress disorder and for other purposes. The Secretary shall carry out a pilot program, this one's still a pilot program, under which um, they provide a $25,000 grant to an eligible organization for each veteran referred. They also would include paying the cost of commercially available vet insurance, hardware replacement if needed, and covering travel expenses for obtaining the dog. Now on the surface, it, it, it seems like a really good thing. It's, it's actually a partnership between the VA and the Humane Society of the US. And it's been, uh, it's been stalled in committees and different things since about June. So I was going through it and I was going through it and I was like, too good to be true. This is too good to be true, way too much. Paragraph I happens to be the second to the last paragraph of the bill, outlines the offsetting of funds from the VA Department of Human Resources to fund this program. Now, putting aside for the second the absolute bullshit of them offsetting the money, why not just put it up front? Why not just make it simple and easy and this is what we're going to do? So at least that and I get why they're hiding it. It's something they've done with legislation forever. It's, 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 not, a, it's not a new thing. But it, it really aggravates me that they go so out of their way to do it. Because we're going to find it eventually. And it also doesn't put any more money into the VA proper. I'm sure there will be a few employees that would administer the program. But every dollar of this $10 million that the VA is losing then goes to a contractor. It doesn't go to other departmental things that the VA might need within their own PTSD dog program. Um, and then I noticed something else that was kind of weird, and tell me what you think about this. There's another bill that just got introduced, and this one's called the Pets and Women's Safety Act, or PAWS Act. The PAWS Act is also a nickname for the first bill. And so this veteran bill that was stalled in June called the PAWS Act suddenly gathers a whole bunch more steam when another bill that's named very similarly for it comes out. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, people are Googling this. They may only be finding one or the other. I, you and I dig through news a lot, but they may only end up finding, oh, we're not even, there isn't even a veteran bill. It's this domestic violence bill. Or what I'm actually fearing is the other way. There's no domestic violence bill. It's a bill about getting veterans dogs. Um, just another way for the Trump administration to skirt responsibility. You know, it's it's interesting how you talk about it. the second to last line item being how it's going to be funded. So much of this is not transparent. 
whether it's, you know, a lot of times we see major legislation coming through as riders to existing bills or as amendments to existing bills. And when you mention the funding, I think that's really important. It reminds me of the post 9-11 GI Bill Act, which, you know, we get this great GI Bill passed. And the one thing that causes almost all the Republicans in Congress to vote against it, despite the fact that they're the ones who really were most supportive of the war in Iraq and Afghanistan, these guys voted against it because they saw that down the line, the money was coming from a small, tiny percentage tax increase on like the upper 1%. So I think what you bring up is super important because how you pay for and how you finance these very valuable programs can determine who votes for it and can determine where... Um, where the priorities are, and and I, you know, I'm so glad you brought it up. Uh, it, the the dollars and cents matter, especially in Congress, especially with the branch that has the power of the purse. So we're we're gonna have more on this and other bills that are similarly written as time goes on. Danny, what you got for us today? Well, I'm a big Bruce Springsteen fan. Um, for our listeners who don't know, I'm a New Yorker, and uh, so I guess an honorary honor Jersey person, and we're all big Bruce Springsteen fans back home. And he had a song in 2006, and uh, the chorus went something like, who will be the last to die for this mistake? And it's an anti-Iraq war song on his album Magic. Well, this week when I saw that another American soldier had been killed in uh, the eastern portion of Afghanistan in combat, died of wounds, I started thinking about that song and you know, I was, I was in Afghanistan, Kandahar province, 2011 and 12. So we're about a million other guys, but that quote from Springsteen seems appropriate for this 16 plus ongoing war. I, you know, people have called Korea the forgotten war. I think there was even a documentary with that title, but I'm going to argue that this war in Afghanistan is the next forgotten war. So far, 12 Americans have died in 2017. Now, that's nothing compared to the amount of guys that were dying in 2009 or 10 or 11. But that's still 12 Americans dead in combat. As for wounded, the ratio is usually about 10 to 1. So we're looking at over 100 soldiers wounded in combat. Now, we can't say they're in combat because they're in, quote, advisory roles or non-combat capacities. And these are direct quotes pulled from a variety of articles. Now, three of those soldiers who died in Afghanistan this year were killed by friendly Afghans in what are called green on blue incidents. That's when the guys that we're advising or assisting in the Afghan security forces turn their guns on their own advisors. You know, this data is rarely reported. If you want to find it, I found it on iCasualties.org, which I recommend to all our listeners. It's the, the most comprehensive database on casualties. Because if you don't catch it on the Chiron for two seconds on the day it happens on CNN, you're not going to hear much about it. The AP reported on this a few days ago uh, that the soldier had died of wounds in uh, the eastern province of Logar this week, but there are essentially no details yet. You know, it's, it's being withheld, obviously, as they let the family know. But here's what I do know. The Associated Press had four sentences on this death in Afghanistan, which is one of only now 13 this year, uh, versus thousands and thousands of words that the smallest Google search showed on the latest Trump tweets on the reality TV drama of this administration. So, you know, as we think about the 3,800 soldiers that are joining the 11,000 that are already in Afghanistan, bringing us to nearly 15,000, I got to ask this question, which is what's the end state? What's the strategy? And who will, in fact, be the last one to die uh, for what is uh, largely appearing to be a quagmire and perhaps a mistake? Uh, gets me pretty fired up. Chris, I don't know what you think about uh, where we stand in Afghanistan, but uh, I'll tell you, it, it, it's, it's hard not to be frustrated and ask a whole lot of tough questions. 
as I was going through the the prep for this story, just reading about a few things, that it seems that it's it's kind of you know that uh, Niger and Africa are the future, and Afghanistan and Iraq were the were some of the lessons. And um, I've been embedded in an advise and assist role, and at the end of my last tour, I knew I just knew to a damn certainty that the moment we left, there complacency there and I'm talking about the the Iraqi government forces we were helping it just started to creep back because there was that much of a gap and so this war debt that our country continues to pay in money and tons of blood is it keeps going over that and the thing that I see is that you know that had there been some kind of good strategy that we had made way back before you know if General Petraeus had been working on you know that embedded insurgent in strategy say back in 1999 versus 2003 we wouldn't have had to go through all those lessons but i think the biggest lesson is is that it wasn't going to work in the first place there was no you know there there is no continuing mission for us in afghanistan there just isn't there is no there's no point we're we're, we're simply paying blood to prove the point that we'll stand there the longest I can't help but wonder if we would even be there if Pakistan wasn't the actual problem. And that's problematic for a number of reasons, but I, I can't help but ask myself, what are 15,000 odd number of troops going to do to create a stable, secure Afghanistan that 100,000 troops couldn't do? And I was there in 2011 on, on year 10 and year 11 of this now 16 year old conflict. You know, I'm willing to accept a tempered end state. If the end state is Al-Qaeda is no longer in Afghanistan and we maintain some sort of platform to strike in case they do re-enter Afghanistan. I could accept that. What is that? That's one air base, 500 soldiers, some drone capacity. We can debate that. Maybe that's the right answer. Maybe it's not. But what I know isn't is this grandiose end state that somehow, as Petraeus called it, we're going to fight a generational war in Afghanistan and the outcome is going to be West Germany or South Korea. And it's, it, it just isn't. And, uh, and 15,000 American soldiers aren't going to change that reality, and, and, and either would a million American soldiers. And, and I think that the, the latest Ken Burns documentary is a great example of how you can throw half a million people into a country, and it doesn't change the fact that this remains an Afghan problem, an Afghan civil war. And in the end, it will be Afghans who determine the nature of their state and, uh, and the nature of the social contract between the people and the, uh, and the government. And I, and I, I, I feel horrible for the family of this soldier who's killed. I feel horrible for all the soldiers that are currently deployed and are probably asking themselves that besides protecting their buddies, what really is their role? And I guarantee that, you know, from my own limited experience, probably a lot of the guys there are asking themselves that very question. Do I really want to die as the last casualty in a losing war? And it's a, it's an absolute disaster. Um, what you mentioned there about a, a small drone base, and we're, we're going to get to Yemen later in the, in the podcast, but I kept help but go to Yemen as kind of an example of what that could look like in the future. You know, we have far-sprung Air Force bases that have refueling capabilities, maybe some fighters, and mostly drones. And then we end up selling our intelligence and our air power to whoever we're on the side of at that particular moment. Right. I think we've had just as much success, if you want to call it that, using very limited operations uh, in a variety of places, including Somalia, Nigeria, Yemen, 
uh, as just a few examples, and even Pakistan, where there's the constant threat of drone assassination. You have to call it what it is, drone assassination. They say it's a targeted killing. It looks a lot like the definition of assassination as far as I can tell. Absolutely. If we believe the, the myth that we're fighting in Afghanistan so we don't have to fight the enemy on our shores in New York or California, if we were to believe that myth, we would need to put 15,000 American soldiers in at least 20 countries, I think that you and I can name off the top of our heads, across the greater Middle East, West Africa, and South Asia. By that logic, we ought to have soldiers in Berlin because that's where, or Hamburg, where the 9-11 attacks were planned. The reality is that this is a, this is a slippery slope. And adding 3,800 troops to a uh, to a failing, unending, perpetual war effort, it, it, it strikes me as unsustainable, uh, unrealistic, and we need to temper our end states and realize that there's a limit to what the United States military forces can achieve overseas. And we're going to come back to Afghanistan, of course, Chris. I mean, we're going to probably do plenty of, uh, of headlines on Afghanistan in the future and, and probably dedicate at least one full episode to it. But, uh, but this is just a preview of the kind of things we're going to be talking about here. Our next uh, thing for item for today comes from uh, Marty Scovland Jr. at Task and Purpose. And he wrote a in really interesting piece on a new debate that's going on about the olive drab berets that are being issued to the 1st Security Assistance Brigade. And there's been really little in the news about them, about the new unit and it being stood up. Essentially, it will be a deployable brigade or a series of brigades actually that they've planned to take the place of 12-man A-team Green Berets. That is what they, they, they will end up doing. And so there's a, there's a similar ideology here that's going to go hand-in-hand hand with some of, the, um, some of the tasks that Green Berets do. And then there's the headgear. It is an olive drab that, for me, <laughs> being freaking colorblind, I, I don't know that I can tell the difference. They look almost exactly the same as a Green Beret, as what's issued to the Green Beret, and it has a lot of people up in arms, despite the fact that it was actually chosen and designed by the Chief of Staff, by General Milley. Um, one senior NCO currently assigned to the first SAFB who requested anonymity um, told Task and Purpose all these decisions, beret color, patch, flash, crest, etc., all of them came from the Chief of Staff. Um, and. I don't know about you, it takes me back to when I joined and everybody was so angry about the Black Beret. I never had an issue with it. I did, you know, as far as the history goes and as far as leadership choices go, I did think that it was disrespectful to the Ranger Regiment as a whole. I think that that, you know, there was other ways that we could have, you know, made us as soldiers look better, look more like a unit or what, I'm not sure exactly what General Shinseki was trying to accomplish with that, but there was a lot of anger about it. There was a lot of, you know, people that didn't want to leave the patrol cap, the people that thought it was disrespectful to Rangers. Um, and continuing on with this one, uh, the Beret controversy isn't the only issue many veterans have with the new unit. Some within the Special Forces community are already casting a side eye at the new unit's patch, nickname, and mission. The patch resembles the old MACV Recondo patch used in Vietnam by some Special Forces soldiers. It includes a tab that initially said Advise-Assist until recently when it was read, uh, changed to Combat Advisor. Um, one, one NCO threw out there about that he thinks that it's, it's disrespectful to Green Berets and it detracts from President Kennedy's intent when he first approved of the Green Beret. 
This is a symbol of a legacy that has been created by the sweat and blood of thousands of men. It's earned, not given away. So, well, that's really interesting what you say about the headgear and about the terminology. We were talking earlier about how words matter, symbols matter, because they they send a signal as to the direction the army is going in. And this notion of creating entire brigades whose focus is advise and assist. It reminds me of the early efforts, you know, seven to eight years ago to create rafts or regionally aligned forces. This idea that we're going to have each brigade, you know, have a specialty in a certain area or in a certain COCOM or combatant command. I mean, the United States is already the only country in the world that divides the entire planet up into essentially military proconsuls, CENTCOM, SOUTHCOM, UCOM. Uh, and, and we've got soldiers all over the world in hundreds of bases. I believe there's about 70,000 soldiers in, uh, in SOCOM, Special Operations Command now. It's about doubled since post 9-11 or since the 9-11 attacks. My question is, is the intent to saturate the world now with conventional U.S. military advisors? And uh, are, are we concerned that there could be blowback from placing SFABs and SOCOM uh, trainers all over the world? And are there other tools besides the military tool, like we talked about last week in Niger, that might be more appropriate. It, there, we're sending a signal when we put, you know, uh, conventional soldiers into SVABs or, or security assistance brigades and, and give them headgear. It looks a whole lot like the Green Berets. If the goal is to SOCOMify, for lack of a better word, the entire army and turn us into a global uh, advise and assist force, I think you are going to see some pushback from uh, from elements within the military, and and I hope from some elements within the State Department who probably think they can do that mission more effectively and less bellicose than uh, than U.S. military. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, I think that our any advise role that we have has to really go to the heart of the mission of the host forces, and um, you know, I was I was really impressed with the government of Niger for declining that armed drone during that that you know that whole thing that happened with those four green berets not that they needed air assistance but the idea that they actually do want to make those checks and holds and they actually do want to have a conversation about the kind of force we have in the area and are those forces ours are they ones that are actually under our control if we're sending out these new uh, brigades to places and all we're doing is doing counterterrorism training, small unit tactics, but nothing that actually helps them as a host military. You know, we're not actually concentrating on things that are good for all soldiers, you know, spending time on marksmanship, spending time on um, uh, fortifications within their own country that are that are useful for them. Sorry, I'm, I'm spitballing here a little bit, but is exactly like what you were talking about with the State Department. That, And the State Department has always been a very strong link between any special forces mission that's going into a country and the administration because they have to make all that possible. We don't ever broadcast it. We don't ever tell people we're sending you six teams of Green Berets. A whole bunch of civilian-looking guys in civilian clothes show up at an airport, and they go off and they do their mission. So... But yeah, and it, it does also complicate this whole of government approach. The the old way was that the ambassador was the senior American coordinator for all U.S. efforts yes, in the country. Yes. The one exception to that, of course, is that 
any military forces that fall under the combatant commander, the regional combatant commander, so in this case, AFRICOM, if it was in Niger, those forces do not fall under the purview uh, of the ambassador in the same way. So we're not getting that whole of government approach. We're essentially stratifying and creating uh, the like a two distinct entities, the military and the State Department. And and the reality is the, the reason we have foreign area officers is because they're supposed to coordinate a whole of government approach for uh, for the country. And so this idea of advisory brigades, while in and of itself, is not necessarily a bad idea. Uh, it raises a whole lot of questions about how we approach you know, advisory capacity throughout the world and whether or not that's always the best way. And we talked about this last week with destabilizing fragile regimes by empowering the military and making coups more more likely or more possible. We have to take, I think we have to think long and hard about every single soldier that goes overseas, that every single deployment has to be looked at uh, with a fine tooth comb. And, and, and that maybe that's my dovish tendencies, or maybe it's me hoping for something that might resemble sober strategy in the future. <laughs> I hope so. That would be awesome. But yeah, I, I, I don't, I don't have much hope for it. Um, what do you think about the possibility for like MOS mission creep in this in this circumstance like post 9-11 lots and lots of different MOS's were assigned to do essentially infantry roles you know there's a lot of variation in that but and sometimes you got guys out there that were very 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 under trained we just went through this horrible thing with what happened to the four green berets in Niger in terms of being having the skill set to do what army wants you to do in any given time and what's going to happen to these guys i mean are they going to say well they're close enough to green berets now send them on that kill op send them on that whatever op when they're not they're not ready for it i mean the best training we usually get for deployments is in the three months before the deployment that's that's generally it so if we have anything else it's left from other training that we went to I could see that mission creep just steadily going on and going on. And, and again, like this, you know, AFRICOM, you know, holding up their hands, like, how did this happen? We know exactly how it happened. They just don't want to say it. Right. Well, I, I love what you're saying about this MOS creep. Uh, I think we're going to see it as we train more and more conventional advisors. They're going to lack the training, the team building, and the capacity of those special forces teams. There's a reason that the A-team which is usually the primary trainer in these environments, It's there's a reason why it has every single man on that team. There's a specialty for everything. 12 has been determined to be the uh, the correct number. They yep. work yep. together in small unit tactics for years. They have special language training, They or they're supposed to. They have uh, special weapons training, special medical training, and they know how to uh, employ assets. They know how to employ in other enablers, airstrikes, yep. artillery, yep. in a way that just, you know, 12 uh, officers and NCOs drawn out of a combat brigade and told suddenly that they're advisors and assisters, they may not be able to uh, to achieve that. And, and, and special forces teams, while their main mission is not kill capture, they have been trained in that as a secondary task and they're prepared yeah. to to turn into a kinetic raid force and i'm not certain that uh, an svab that uh, probably has at most trained together for like you said three months is going to be able to do that but there will be the tendency and there will be the temptation when intelligence crops up at headquarters to say well we got 12 soldiers out there yeah they're not green berets but well, they're our best hope. So send them after, uh, you know, Abdullah, Abdullah, whoever, and then uh, they walk themselves into an ambush. So, I mean, I, I think this is incredibly dangerous. And I love what you say about this MOS creep because we see it time and again. 
just like we use soldiers to do State Department tasks, I think we are, we're, we're asking soldiers to become Green Berets, and that, that's just not realistic. And this is even after we've doubled the size of SOCOM, which in and of itself probably has weakened some of the capacity because there's no way uh, that 70,000 are as easy to train as 35,000. Um, when I mentioned that Black Beret thing before, um, I had a thought about that. You know, we went through a, a whole huge period of years post 9-11 where Army enlistment standards were slimmed down and cut down and cut down and cut down over and over again. And I, I, I worry about that in terms of this is that, you know, we, you know, they're not cutting people out of the army or saying you're not good enough, you're not bad enough, but that, um, <laughs> I'm sorry, I lost my thought. Um, but that it, it, it's a kind of, it's, it's a watering down of expectations. It's a consistent, you know, doing that. And I know that um, a few of the soldiers that I served with towards the end of my time in the Army, you could really see that. You could see how basic training and little things like that had been cut down. And so you combine that, you combine with our already post-9-11 environment of needing lots of troops, of using lots of troops, and trying to get them through with the most minimal training. And then on the other hand, you have this MOS creep where, like exactly what you just described, no, they're not technically qualified, but there's 12 guys and they're going to go really give it their best chance. No, I no, I, this is not the way that you build a military, the, the army, it, it's not. And like you mentioned about how much had been layered is getting layered on SOCOM. I think it's simply done that for the exact reason that you mentioned that SOCOM not being, you know, I guess that units might get tasked to an ambassador in when and if they might need it. Right. But because all of these units are under combatant commands, does that ambassador know that he's got four teams of green berets that are 60 miles down the road in his country? I mean, it, it it seems like there's been that kind of loss of communication with the with the cuts to the State Department. Right. Absolutely. And we yeah, are with the, the talk of cutting the State Department by 47 uh, percent. Hopefully that'll get tempered in the reality of, uh, you know, uh, of sausage making there in Congress. But the the head diplomat, the ambassador is supposed to be the chief of mission. And the chief of mission is supposed to have a unity of command, one of the principles of warfare, unity of command. And I, I doubt they have it. Uh, but what's interesting is, you know, that diplomat, that ambassador is going to be the one that's going to be scrambling to explain to the host country what happens when one of these 12 man teams that potentially is undertrained, potentially isn't as capable as a special forces team, when they get themselves in trouble or when they cause an atrocity or when there are civilian casualties or there are American dead, you can bet it's going to be that ambassador who's going to be uh, left holding the bag to explain it. And if he doesn't have full knowledge of what's going on uh, within his purview, that, that, that just doesn't seem right. And I, and I want to take one other thing you said and use it sort of the transition, I think. Uh, you mentioned the en enlistment standards and how they had dropped from, you know, especially around the time of the surge, 2006, seven, Iraq is falling yes. apart. Baghdad that was, that was the worst time of it, absolutely. You know, we were there, it was a nightmare, and it reminds me of Bo Bergdahl. And here, here, here we are getting back into that issue, which I think we do have to revisit today. And it's one of my next headlines. Uh, Bergdahl comes in, he enlists right at the tail end of the surge, and he really should have been looked at a lot more carefully by his recruiter, like we talked about last week, because the Coast Guard had discharged him after having a panic, panic attack, and the psychiatrist down there in Cape May, New Jersey, where they do Coast Guard training, had essentially said, hey, this guy needs to be looked at carefully 
before he re-enlists, whether in the Coast Guard or another force. Well, the army was taking all takers, desperate, and we end up with Bo Bergdahl. And the thing is, you know, I think we should just jump right into it. Bergdahl uh, is not receiving any prison time. And, and this is really our next story. He is getting dishonorable discharge, which really denies him most, if not all, veterans' benefits. Could affect his employment forever, so it is not a light sentence. But he could have faced life in prison. And this is a highly emotional topic, but I do think it's appropriate to talk about. And, and you know, I'm going to give my opinion, and I'm going to kind of hand it to you. Inevitably, we're going to upset 50% of our listeners and the country just by virtue of talking about this. That's how divided this country is. And Bo Bergdahl is as political as healthcare now. That's the problem. It's too politicized. I think one of the reasons that this colonel gave him a, quote, light sentence is because two factors. Number one, that colonel, I think they chose him appropriately because of it, is retiring, has no intention, the judge, of seeking the next level of promotion. So he didn't have to worry as much. Just like we see Jeff Flake and Bob Corker being the only two Republicans speaking out against Trump. Well, yep. they have another thing in common, which is neither of them is trying to run in 2018. So they don't they don't have to go out and fundraise anymore. Well, you could say the same thing about this judge. So I think he was the right choice, this judge. But he realized that this case had become too politicized. And it was potentially impossible for Bergdahl to get a fair hearing because the well had been poisoned uh, to take a legal colloquial. Trump is out there pantomiming the... Uh, the firing squad calling for the death of Bo Bergdahl in a summary execution and then telling reporters, you know, well, I think you've heard my reports before on this. And, you know, what Trump doesn't realize is that if he wanted Bergdahl to get the death penalty or, he, or, or life in prison, which was the highest possibility, if he wanted that, the best thing he could have done was shut his mouth. Because the minute he does that, it's un undue command influence. And I think that that is partly what got this judge to decide not to give him a, a, a more strict prison sentence. I'll say two more things about this, and that is, we discussed this last week, but while I feel for the soldiers definitely wounded during the search for Bergdahl and maybe allegedly possibly killed, it's very difficult for a judge or a sentencing jury to define which missions were Bergdahl specific and which missions would have happened without Bergdahl being missing. When you combine that with the man's genuine mental health problems and that he probably shouldn't have even been in an infantry unit in Afghanistan or allowed to enlist. And remember that desertion, which I think he most certainly did, is not necessarily treason and the guy did suffer a lot. That doesn't mean that I think he's a romantic hero I think this was handled terribly by the Obama administration and the Trump administration both. Uh, but this guy has suffered. You know, all those years in solitary confinement does damage. And when that's combined with the politicized nature of it, I, I don't think we could have given this guy a life sentence uh, in good conscience. How should it have been handled by Trump and Obama? Well, I have a complaint for each side. We really didn't need Susan Rice and President Obama wrapping their arms around the family of Bo Bergdahl and saying he served honorably without looking into the actual the actual case and seeing that maybe that's not true because they're asking for trouble. I mean, it, it, so pitifully handled. And then the Trump administration, you know, this guy is up on stage, uh, you know, parodying the shooting uh, of, of an American soldier, you know, uh, for treason. And that's not appropriate either. So here's what I think. I think that Bergdahl is neither a hero nor a supervillain. And the reality is that this is a time for a little bit of empathy, and it's also time for us to drop this case and stop politicizing individual soldier service. I don't know what you think about that, Chris. Uh, 
Um, I agree. I, I agree pretty much completely. I, uh, it's, it's, it's odd again where you take in your news because the prosecutors asked for 14 years, but Trump kept talking about life in prison or the death penalty. And so if you, know, if you ended up hearing that, you would know that all of his talk of death or life in prison was worth nothing because yeah it just it just was um i'm definitely with you on the the split with the obama administration about the way that they handled it i read through a pretty long daily beast article here by uh, nathan bradley brea or uh, betha excuse me and he was an officer who actually was part of bergdahl's unit at, at that time and that was something very specifically that hurt him a lot was seeing the parading of his family and also about the language used. You come back to that, you mentioned earlier about how we use our words. That honorable is a very big word in the military. It, it has huge, huge implications. And when someone misuses it or mislabels it, which is what, what I would call this, in this circumstance, it's very, very painful. Um, so I, I think that that really was, was a, a, poor, a poor thing on that. I think that they jumped headfirst into the optics of it without realizing what they were actually doing. And thankfully, after that time, as far as the Obama administration was concerned, they just shut up about it. They let Bergdahl recover, they let the investigation happen, and then they were just silent. I think it was one of Trump's first comments is that we first started when that, that became more and more politicized as it went on. But this lieutenant, um, Nathan, who wrote this article for the Daily Beast, he goes into extended length about the weeks and months following Bergall's disappearance and the patrols trying to find him um, about that point of being on a mission where everyone is just beyond exhausted. And the reason that they're on the mission is a guy who walked off the mission. So again, there's, there's so much anger about it. And I, I'm, I can completely understand. Um, it's hard though, as I read through his, his account, and I'm not, I'm not saying he's not true. I, I wasn't there. I don't have no idea what happened. But um, it's hard to put so many deaths on Bo Bergdahl as a great number of soldiers have. And I say that because it was a horrible time in Afghanistan. I was never deployed to Afghanistan, so I have to I kind of go off with what I read and what you share with me, Danny. Um, and they mentioned about how that when he started, when he was lost, that they just, it was hands across America trying to find him. And so they were tearing through villages. And, and I could see how just the action of that, if Bo, even if they had just started that and Bo hadn't disappeared, how that would have brought upon a, an, insur an insurgent, the big insurgent force that came around in August of that year. So... Um, I think there's a lot of factors here, but yeah, I don't blame anybody for their anger about it. I don't blame them for having questions about it. And I think that that's the biggest, the biggest punishment that Bergdahl has to live with wherever he goes for the rest of his life. There's no, there's no getting away from this. There's no, how many times will, I think I said this last time, how many times will he get cussed out? You know? Um, yeah. So it's, he has, he has that as a punishment as well. None of this is is to say what his punish that his punishment is worthy of the lives lost. I, I think that that's just that's just bad ways of doing optic math. You know, you you can't do that. 
combat is such a hostile and hazardous place. And but he has a lot on his head. He has a lot. There's a lot he has to answer for. Um, this guy, uh, Andrew, he didn't uh, he didn't get hurt. Um, there was a second guy here that I read about from the Associated Press, and he is um, Chief Petty Officer Hatch, and he was a SEAL that got shot in the leg on a search mission. And his attitude was he had he um, wants to he wants to sit down with Bergdahl and kind of have a face to face, and his attitude was much more towards we've all had enough pain you know is that 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 when it when it happened when you're in the midst of the moment that the pain and the anger is overwhelming but as time goes on just seeing that the best thing you know is that yes i'm i at times i wanted this motherfucker to die to go to jail to all the nasty thoughts that we've had but years later someone's actually able to say I'm, you know, I'm, 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 I'm doing okay with it. You know, I'm not, you know, um, that's a really mature way of, uh, of looking at it. And I, I, I think that petty officer is a lot of credit. And I think that's a lot of the reason why the judiciary and the legal system does put some space and time between its decisions, because there's too much emotion when we look for retribution and, and it's the role of the court to take a holistic view and it may not make everyone happy and it may not uh, match everyone's ideas of crime punishment and, and retribution. But I think that's the role of the court is to be a, uh, an arbiter that is an, an uninterested arbiter. And, and, and I don't think that we can rely on just the emotions of, of soldiers who, who really suffered looking for him. And I'm not taking that away from them, but there's a reason that they're not the judge and jury. There's a reason why this is uh, this is done by a separate organization. And it, it's, it's not perfect, but it's, it, it is a strength of the UCMJ or the uniform court of military justice that it does play that role. Something similar to a civilian court, which is, is really what we expect of it. And, uh, and I, I, I do applaud that, that petty officer for that kind of maturity years later. It, it must take a lot. And, and he's a big person for saying that. No, he, he made it real clear that he went from, I want to rip this dude's head off to, I'm feeling a little better about it. You know, he, he don't, he don't want Bergdahl to come to his barbecues by any means, but he, but that we can, we can live without that anger being out in the air. And so, and that's a, that's a big thing. So, and it you're right. It takes a lot. So. The Trump administration is now on their third try of trying to get a secretary of the army. Um, the current nominee is a fellow named Mark Esper, who's a retired army lieutenant colonel. He's a West Point graduate and he served in the Gulf War. Um, he spent the last seven years working for Raytheon. And that was something that uh, in, his, in his Senate hearing that uh, Senator Warren brought up, um, she specifically asked him if there was anything, any, what specific projects did he work on and would he recuse himself from those projects? And he said that he would. Um, and he was real specific. Um, uh, John, John McCain um, discussed a lot about failed weapon systems, future combat systems, Comanche attack helicopter, Crusader howitzer, the joint tactical radio system, and the distributed common ground system army. Or just a few of the ones that he mentioned. Let me tell you now, this is not acceptable to the taxpayers of America. We do not want any more of these failures. You lose credibility with the American people when a program has to be canceled that costs the taxpayers over six billion. We just can't keep wasting billions of dollars like this. Um, 
and uh, Mr. Esper, he agreed. He he um, he seems like he's going to. He could end up being a decent one. I the, the thing that that sticks out to me the most, and I'm sure it does you too, is is the the seven years working for Raytheon, and. I've been I've been working on trying to compile a list of who I think are the biggest military contractors, and there's so many ways that someone in his position could make little pushes, little things to bring in Raytheon or other companies into all kinds of stuff. And you know how much money we put into Raytheon. I, I remember the huge miles station they had at Fort Irwin for putting stuff on the trucks and taking it off the trucks and contractors that make. An immense amount of money for doing what they do hard work certainly but um but i think that even with even with what he said i still worry about having an army secretary that has that on their resume as i would have if you asked me in this moment in my life about vice president cheney back in the day and his his relationship with halliburton um and i think that that it needs to come down to that as far as our elected officials and our in our appointed officials is that at a certain point, we have to tell people they got to divest from the public, the public sector work or the private sector work because there's too much mistrust. There's too much of us with this situation wondering about is every situation he's going to be doing helping uh, fill Ra- uh, uh, Raytheon's pockets um, or the exact opposite. What if he's awesome at his job and yet we still have questions? What's actually going on? But because of the questions, because this huge blank space, we don't really know. So. Um, he's a former infantry officer. He did said that he envisioned ground convoys at some point being conduct, conducted autonomously to avoid risks to soldiers such as the army saw in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, I like the idea of that, but I think that <laughs> I just I, I keep picturing the um, did you did you see Logan? the uh, the autonomous the the semis going down the freeway and i think about that and then i know that we would expand it to all their kinds of things so then I'm, I'm picturing robot soldiers doing stuff in a foreign country which essentially you would be to if you had autonomous uh if you have autonomous convoys it's 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 just that loss of command and control i think it's a horrible mistake I, yeah well, and uh, the, uh, the, so. the 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 armed autonomous convoys brought to you by perhaps raytheon <laughs> so, i mean i'm yep. I, i'm yep. purposely being flippant but i like how you brought this up and those seven years at raytheon like you said whether or not he actually does have any interest or does uh, have any ethical problems where he actually you know, encourages the investment in Raytheon. Even if he didn't do that, the perception is going to be there. It's about optics as much as it is anything else. And yep. I have to believe there were other qualified candidates who did not spend seven years deep in the belly of the military industrial complex. We're supposed to pride on ourselves as a military of being relatively apolitical. Now, this is coming from one of the more political officers in the U.S. Army, but I'm not going to be in the Army forever and <laughs> I'm not at the highest levels. And perhaps that's a poor excuse, but I, I do want to say that we need to think long and hard about who we place in charge of procurement because the reality is the, the secretaries, the service chiefs are primarily responsible for recruiting, funding, and equipping the forces for the combatant commanders. And, and if there's a perception of a revolving door, then that's problematic. And we see it with the generals. I mean, these generals make about $120,000 to $150,000 a year at the top of the pay scale. And that's not too bad. That's only about eight to nine more 
eight to nine times as much as a private, which is still a lot, but it's nothing compared to the business world where it's a thousand no. times from the CEO down to the... So in some ways, there's an egalitarian nature to the military that I appreciate. But once these guys retire as one-star, two-star, three-star, or especially four-star generals, they almost always find themselves uh, on the board of a number of major corporations. Too many of those corporations are directly involved in the military industrial complex. And those generals still have connections, people that used to work for them who are now at the top of the military service branches. And there's a problem there. There there are potentials for collusion. There is potential for unethical activity. And even if, even if that's not happening, I think the, uh, the perception is there. And again, you've sort of poisoned the well, as we talked about earlier. And I think that if the military is to stay political, then it also has to stay out of the military industrial complex or lobbying, which is another common place that these guys find themselves. So really glad you brought this story up. And I, I hope we look long and hard at the records of everybody that comes before Congress for a nomination to be a service secretary. So I had one more headline for today. This was from the Washington Examiner, which reported that the National Security Advisor, uh, Army Active Duty Lieutenant General H.R. McMaster, a um, guy that I respect, uh, who wrote a great book, scholar and a warrior in his own right. But he was quoted as saying this week that Trump will, quote, use whatever language he wants on his Asia trip. That's probably true. I think if this president has shown anything, it's that he's going to do essentially what he wants to do. But it was striking to hear the National Security Advisor and a three-star general say this. In fact, he was quoted as saying that Trump's past comments about fire and fury being rained down on North Korea, the likes of which the world has never seen. Really fantastic, uh, fantastic hyperbole. But he said that that kind of language is not inflammatory. This is what H.R. McMaster said. But rather, the actions of the North Korean regime are inflammatory. I can't help but wonder if both of those things can be true at the same time. Does it have to be one or the other? Can't the North Korean dictator be a cartoon villain who really is a dangerous man and, and a detriment to his people? But at the same time, fire and fury talk and threats of nuclear war from the United States of America, which is supposed to be the responsible actor in this relationship or in this uh, you know, adver adversary relationship. Is it inflammatory? I think yes. Is it productive? I have to think no. And it's, it's, no, it's, it's no surprise that Bob Corker, Senator, Republican type, it's no surprise, from Tennessee, by the way, not exactly like a blue or a purple state, but Bob Corker, he chose to speak out against Trump when? You know, what was the tipping point? Well, it wasn't uh, pussy grabbing and it wasn't any of the other, you know, uh, ridiculous stuff we saw in the campaign. It was North Korea. Why? Because Bob Corker is the head of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, a guy in charge of foreign affairs notionally, ostensibly, for the United States. And he thought that Trump's language was, in fact, inflammatory and counterproductive. So this leaves me asking, how should we evaluate? And this is rhetorical. I don't think we're going to get into it. I don't think we're going to have an answer, but I'll ask you what you think. And how do we evaluate former generals Kelly, now the chief of staff, McMaster, now the national security advisor, and uh, and Jim Mattis, the secretary of defense, these, these well-respected senior generals, how do we evaluate their roles in the Trump administration at this point? Where is the line between a patriotic duty to serve and try to temper some of the madness in the White House or the adult daycare center, as it's been recently called? What, where's the line between that patriotic duty to serve and complicity in, in dangerous behaviors by the administration? And I don't know that I have the answer, but I'm increasingly disconcerted by uh, 
the defense that I've seen from these three individuals of the Trump administration. And I don't know what you think about that, but that's what made this article jump out at me is, man, I respect these guys. I may disagree with them on many things, but I respect their service. I respect their relative intellectual rigor. And then what are we to make of them at this point? And and then what are we to make of them in a year if this doesn't stop, if, if, if the madness continues? The thing I come back to about McMaster the most was the picture that he used to convince the president to add our, add additional thousands of troops to Afghanistan. Um, some of his job certainly is is that he has to be puppeted a bit. You know, there, I'm trying to think of when it was that uh, Trump had him out doing something and he had nothing to do with it, but he was having to be a spokesman for the administration on something awful. But I, I can't think oh, of that. Oh, that was the, right uh, it was the, uh, when they said that Trump had leaked intelligence data that was classified to the Israelis and That's it. McMaster was thrown out there to do damage control. Yeah, anyway, go ahead. I, I, I'm not entirely familiar with what his, his larger strategy is. I know that he um, was very, very critical of decisions in Vietnam, but the thing that, that pissed me off the most was why does he, why is he continuing to push for the war? I mean, if he was able to perform this trick on our president, why does he, who he is, who we've been talking about, still on the side of staying in Afghanistan? What what point is there to him? What what you know? And and we can't go ask him like you're talking about. You know, how do we find the line here? But that really signified something to me that either his either he's changed his entire philosophy or he's just willing to go with what the boss wants. Or at least what the boss wants up to a certain point. Um, we've been talking this whole episode about how words matter. And the president of any country is the mouthpiece of the country. And right now, our mouthpiece is telling the world that we're actively willing to bomb and kill. I don't know. I can't remember how many million people live in North Korea, but it's a lot. Um, and like you said, you know, there, we, we don't have to be one or the other. We don't have to, if there's a tin-pot dictator who has nuclear weapons, we don't have to necessarily be up the dictator's throat. It's not an either-or. It's not... And, and it's really frustrating to me that that is the mentality, especially when the news media gets it. Because Wolf Blitzer will get on there and it's like, well, did you really... you know?" That, and it's piecing apart a single insane sentence, you know, like... Uh, um, as opposed to asking real questions. So you and I sit here for, you know, hours and ask our questions, but those questions don't make it that way. It's 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 just about pushing the party line. And I'm not persuaded that if we had President Trump as a guest on our podcast right now that he could really lay out uh, a clear picture of the Korean Peninsula and all of its complexities, nor could he lay out a coherent strategy. Fire and fury talk is great, and it, it definitely gets the base heated up, but there are real soldiers whose lives are in the balance, and there are real civilians on both sides of that border whose lives are in the balance. And Seoul is a megacity with 10,000 artillery tubes pointed at it, and this sort of rhetoric is not fixing the situation. It's not making Kim Jong-un any less likely to, uh, to, to try to get nuclear weapons or to increase his nuclear capacity. In fact, it's probably having the opposite effect. So yes, President Trump might be right that nothing the Obama administration and nothing the Bush two administration did actually stopped Kim Jong-un and his father from developing a nuclear program. That's not incorrect, but nor am I persuaded that this rhetoric in and of itself, because that's what it feels like. It feels like hot air, a whole bunch of hot air 
and uh, and pejoratives and hyperbole, and it's it's not it's not making the situation better. I think HR McMaster knows that. I, I like to believe that to be true, but I think one of the ironies of this administration, when the history is written years on, is they are going to highlight how HR McMaster wrote his PhD dissertation and first book about how the general should have stood up to Lyndon Johnson's failed policy in Vietnam. And they're going to ask the question, should HR McMaster have stood up for, uh, stood up and said that the policy in Afghanistan and Iraq is, uh, is not working and, and is a formula for endless conflict. I don't know. I can't be in the man's head, but I, I can see that history being written. And I really hope these guys do take a stand. We don't know what's going on behind the scenes. We don't know if they're stopping even crazier shit from going on. But uh, but this comment bothered me, you know, where McMaster says that the president's going to use whatever language he wants. Well, the president has a responsibility, like you said, as the mouthpiece to to speak responsibly and to have some sort of force behind his words and, and not to be full of bluster. It bothers me and it bothers me that these three generals are seeing their own reputations tarnished because every minute they stand with him and every time they defend him there. I just I just don't think history is going to be kind to them. And, and that makes me sad and that makes me concerned. Aside from aside from North Korea, my thought about it is, you know, North Korea has been very stable as far as doing their nuclear tests, responding to us. But again, they 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 haven't made any major military moves aside from their nuclear capacity in a long time. I'm worried about somebody like um, Rodrigo Duterte and him Trump saying something to him. And him going out and killing a bunch of his own people based on that. I'm concerned about a situation like that. You know, North Korea, as long as, 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 long as it stays where it is, hopefully that won't actually happen. But we've been talking about where all of our other forces are throughout the world. It doesn't take much. You know, as much as they drowned out, droned on about it, we know that the video... Uh, the video that they showed before the attack in Benghazi in 2012 had an impact on what happened in that city that day. And what if we, what if we're to find that out? What if we're to find out that Camp Limonier is overrun in Africa because of something we said about the Ethiopian prime minister or something? I don't, I'm, I'm spitballing, but I think you understand Absolutely. what I'm getting at here. Yeah, we have a responsibility to parse our words carefully, to say what we mean and mean what we say, and they have to know that the true force of the United States government is behind those words. And they can't be saying, and I, I fear that foreign leaders at this point are ignoring much of what they hear over tweet, much of what they hear on the American news. But, you know, you can only cry wolf so often. All it takes, like you said, is is one tin pot dictator, one uh, regional aggressor to take these words seriously or not, and then make decisions accordingly. And these three generals, and I'm talking about Kelly, Mattis, and McMaster, they, they, they've got a very important responsibility here. And, and I just hope that they're not tarnishing their own legacies and reputations in the process of defending uh, this president. And, and I, I think we'll see. I think the, the the script is yet to be written on how this is all going to turn out. But it's, uh, I, think it's, I think it's really valuable to talk about. Yeah. I, uh, <clears throat> I didn't use the word false flag earlier, but I could see... <laughs> something of this nature being woven into a false flag that pushes us in a big direction militarily whatever that would be so all right so our lead story today you know is about yemen that's right yemen another one of those countries that one in a thousand americans could probably find on the map 
And Yemen is in the midst of a uh, civil war that has increasing regional and global consequences. Humanitarian crisis, civilian casualties, a regional cold war, important actors, some of whom are allies and some of whom are adversaries that are involved in this little country, the poorest country in the Arab world. So the question then I think is why Yemen? Why are we going to talk about it on this podcast? And why is it so important for U.S. foreign policy? Well, here's a couple of small anecdotal facts. The bin Laden family were originally from Yemen, from the eastern deserts of Yemen, and, and they eventually moved to Saudi Arabia where they made their, their riches and their fortune. There's an enormously high number of the Gitmo detainees, Guantanamo Bay detainees, who were from Yemen. Yemen has, a, has always produced radicals for the Mujahideen fighting the Soviets in Afghanistan and then fighting with the Taliban, with al-Qaeda, and some people say that Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, or AQAP, is in fact the most dangerous branch of Al-Qaeda uh, in the world today. I don't think we can talk about Yemen and the ramifications of this humanitarian catastrophe and civil war and how it affects the United States policy without understanding basic Yemeni history. Uh, I recommend a book by Jenny Hill. She is a, a journalist, uh, a British journalist, and she wrote a book that just published called Yemen Endures. And I will tell you, it is a fantastic overview that has the human element. But here goes uh, Yemen history 101. And I'm going to do it on a timeline. Bottom line is, there used to be two Yemens until 1990. There was North Yemen, known as the Yemen Arab Republic, or YAR. And then there was the Democratic Republic of Yemen, or the DRY, or the PDRY, the People's Democratic Republic, People's Democratic Republic of Yemen. And that was known as South Yemen. Look. North Yemen, or where three quarters of the population lives, became independent in 1918 from the Ottoman Empire. Southern Yemen was still a British colony. Aden was the major city. From 1960 to 1967, the Egyptians had uh, put about a third of their army on the ground in Yemen, trying to overcome what was called a royalist group of, uh, of Shia, who are now known as the Houthis, in, in North Yemen. That ended in failure for the for the Egyptians and resulted in thousands of casualties. And it ended a thousand-year-old imamate, a thousand-year-old uh, royalist republic, essentially, that was led by Zaidi Shias, and we'll get into that later. In 1967, the British finally gave up their colony in South Yemen. It became a socialist republic that was under the control of the Soviet Union, which had provided advisors, and the ubiquitous AK-47 times several million. The leader of Yemen... Uh, whose name is Saleh, S-A-L-E-H. He has been in charge since 1978, and he didn't step down from power until 2012. This guy was uh, in charge of Yemen for longer than I've been alive. And in 1990, he helped to unify North and South Yemen. And that didn't happen without some problems, of course. In 1994, there was a civil war fought between the North and the South. The more powerful and populous North essentially won, and, uh, and united the republic once and for all by 1994. A lot of Americans never heard of Yemen until 2000 when uh, a suicide patrol boat attacked the USS Cole and killed 17 US sailors. That's when it got on Americans' radar. That was in the port of, uh, that was down in the port of Aden, which was an old British colony. From that day forward, Yemen has kind of been on the sidelines of the war on terror. Occasional drone strikes. In fact, I believe the first armed drone strike uh, that the uh, that the Bush administration actually s sanctioned was in Yemen. 
In 2009, the two separate branches of Al-Qaeda, one of which was in Saudi Arabia, one of which was in Yemen, united under what's called the Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, or AQAP. In 2011, after Tunisia and Egypt and Libya and eventually Syria got pulled into the Arab Spring uprising, so did Yemen. So did Yemen. Eventually, uh, the president, who had been in charge since 1978, stood down under international pressure, and his vice president from South Yemen, the name is Hadi, took over. Now, President Saleh, who was the president for since 1978, he didn't disappear. He actually re-allied himself with the Houthi Shias, who live in the northwest part of Yemen, and they invaded the capital city, took over most of Yemen in response to what they saw as weak governance and unfair uh, sharing of resources, and a civil war begins. Saudi Arabia, which is a Sunni powerhouse, is not willing to accept the Shia Houthis in charge of much of the nation, even though they are a large portion of the population of Yemen. And the Gulf Community Council, this GCC, uh, which is essentially Saudi Arabia and all the emirates on the peninsula, began bombing and supporting ground forces in Yemen. So from 2015 until the present, an ongoing civil war, 10,000 civilian casualties by the lowest estimate, and an ongoing civil war. Look, the Yemen conflict is extraordinarily complex, and if that story doesn't tell you it is, then, uh, then, then these broad outlines will. There's a few key players. There's the Houthis and the former president who control essentially the north and west of the country. There's a tenuous frontline stalemate between the Houthis, uh, who are Shia on one side, and uh, President Hadi's forces and the Saudi supporters on the other. If you listen to Saudi Arabia or if you listen to President Hadi, uh, he would tell you that the Houthis get all their money and all their arms from Iran, which brings them into the picture because they're, of course, Saudi Arabia's greatest regional uh, adversary. On the other side, out in the eastern desert, you've got Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula and a new Islamic State province that's forming. And these guys are really on, aren't on either side of the civil war, but they're, they're growing in strength because of the chaos that's been in the civil war. So he, so that's the broad outlines, and I, and I wish I could have done it quicker, but I think you lose something if you don't understand the broad contours of the Yemen conflict. Here's where it fits into U.S. policy. Saudi Arabia is a long-time ally in the region. That's right. Wahhabi, theocratic Saudi Arabia has long been an American ally. Ever since President Roosevelt stopped and saw the king on the way back from the Yalta conference and they divided up the oil in the region, they have essentially relied on U.S. support. But here's the thing. The United States now is providing precision-guided munitions, or PGMs, intelligence support, uh, refueling of Saudi fighter pilots uh, who are bombing Yemen. And we are complicit in the mass humanitarian catastrophe that's going on in Yemen. You'll see very little public debate about this in Congress and very little questioning of the ethics or whether this strategy of supporting Saudi Arabia in a brutal uh, counterinsurgency conflict and a brutal civil war that we, we, we scant understand. And what I would say is that it matters what's done in our name. It matters who we support. President Trump signed a record $110 billion arms deal with Saudi Arabia. 15 out of 19 hijackers on 9-11 were Saudis. 
Saudi Arabia has been spreading its brand of intolerant extremist Wahhabism Islam for decades now. And their human rights record is brutal. Did you know that in Saudi Arabia you can be beheaded for apostasy, which is essentially not believing in God or as they define God, or witchcraft or sorcery? I mean, these are the sort of things they're, they're, they're decapitating people for in Saudi Arabia. And we have put ourselves behind them lock, stock, and barrel. And, uh, and what's the name of the Saudi bombing campaign on Yemen that I'm going to get more into the humanitarian ramifications of? Well, you guessed it. It's Operation Renewal of Hope. So how's that for uh, a great euphemism? They should, whoever's naming these uh, campaigns for the Saudi Arabians really should come work for us because uh, because we love names like Iraqi Freedom and Enduring Freedom. So th that's that's kind of my first bit, Chris. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to turn it over to you to, to talk a little bit about your feelings on Yemen. And, and I apologize to our listeners for getting into such detail, but we need to understand these wars, the 27 million Yemeni people who are affected by it, and how our complicity in such a civil war affects our view around the world. How does the Arab street see the United States when we're refueling Saudi jets that are bombing civilians? So yeah, with that, I'll turn it over to you, Chris. I, I don't know what your thoughts are on the Yemeni conflict. Um, I do. I, I agree with you. I think that we are, we are complicit in humanity well not humanitarian in in almost i can't say genocide but it almost is in a genocidal way um i think that this fits into the whole africom light footprint and you know trying to make that smaller that we talked about you know that um i can't remember how long this particular conflict's been going on but that we didn't really hear about it in the news until I don't know what the beginning of last year sometime in 20, 2015 where it really was actually on the forefront of some news organizations minds to put it out there that what's happening in Yemen not necessarily our involvement but just what's happening in Yemen yeah the BBC reports it but uh, you, you, you'd be lucky to get two minutes from any American uh, broadcast on this yeah yeah um, I guess I, I I just continue. It's 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 just the repeating of us inserting ourselves into uh, tribal violence in one way or another, and uh, not having any kind of a. I mean, we, we don't we don't have any kind of we don't have any diplomatic solutions for that. So, um, is that was something that I wrote down here uh, to ask you about? Is that do you think that there's anything that the international non-U.S. community could do to at the very least, raise awareness, if not, you know, intervene in a diplomatic way? It's a really great question. I wish I had a positive and less pessimistic answer. There are UN agencies there. There is a, a UN special representative for the conflict who's supposed to work on a power sharing agreement between the Houthis in the Northwest and the, uh, the primarily Sunni Southern Yemenis who are uh, supporting the president, President Hadi. There are NGOs there. There are journalists who care. There are thousands of bright people who are uh, uh, staking their future on Yemen. And some of these people are Western. But I would say that the reality is nothing changes on the ground in Yemen until Saudi Arabia feels some pain before Saudi Arabia uh, gets funding cut off or is forced by the United States to back down. So long as Saudi Arabia has the money, the funding, and the 
diplomatic backing of the most powerful superpower in the world, you are not going to see Saudi Arabia back down. You are not going to see Saudi Arabia bow to the United Nations because they know that's not where the real power lies. The real power lies in who has more PGMs and who has more F-16s. And the answer in this case, and in almost every case, is Saudi Arabia. And where did they get them? They got them from us. They got them from amazing, uh, amazingly generous arms deals that have really been going on for at least 30 to 40 years now. And this is what gets me is the Yemeni people are not in the story. Most people who talk about Yemen talk about Saudi Arabia, talk about the United States, and they talk about Iran. And the Yemeni people are just this morass of people, faceless, nameless folks in a country no one can find on a map. The reality is Yemenis are actually pawns in a larger game. In, in, in a broader regional Cold War between the Saudi Arabians and the United States on one side and, and the Iranian boogeyman on the other side, on the east side of what's really a regional Cold War. And I will say this, it's unclear, and I wrote an article about this not too long ago that didn't make me any friends in the military, but it is unclear that we're on the right side. Maybe we're on the wrong side, and if we're not on the wrong side, maybe we shouldn't be on any side at all. The Trump administration seems, and, and, and oh, by the way, all three of his rather hawkish generals, Mattis, McMaster, and Kelly, they're all Iran hawks. The Trump administration seems committed to conflict with Iran, pulling out of the, uh, of the nuclear deal, pulling out of the joint comprehensive uh, agreement with Iran. They seem willing to let Saudi Arabia paint Iran as a boogeyman responsible for every evil in the Middle East, even though that's a broad generalization. And it's likely to get worse. You know, Iran is supporting, it seems, the Houthis. But the level of support for the Houthis is questionable. One thing is, the Saudi Arabians want us to believe that it's a Sunni versus Shia battle and that Iran is on the bad side and that they support every single Shia group in the region because Iran, of course, is is primarily Shia. But you got to remember, there there's a lot more nuance to all this. The Zaidi Shias, okay? These The Houthis are Zaidis. It's a separate form of Shiaism from the Twelver Shiaism of, uh, of Iran, which is also the, the primary Shia uh, branch in, in Iraq. But Iran makes a perfect scapegoat, a perfect bogeyman for the United States and for Saudi Arabia. And who's caught in the middle? Who's actually under those bombs? Well, it ain't Saudi Arabia and it ain't Iran and it certainly isn't New York. It's the Yemeni people. And, and that really concerns me because to me, they're victims without agency and, uh, and few people care. And when you read Jenny Hill's book, one of the things that jumps out is as a, as a journalist who lived among these people for so long, she has an incredible amount of sympathy for them and it frustrates her. And I'm sure it frustrates NGO workers and UN uh, peacekeepers, it frustrates them that the people who have the least voice are the Yemenis, and they're the ones enduring the terrible casualties under these bombs. Have we, since since the raid that we had in January, have we had any public incursions into Yemen that we actually know about? Nothing open source um, in terms of boots on the ground, although... I reported last week in the headlines that uh, that we I think CENCOM released a public affairs kind of you know release that 60 ISIS terrorists have been killed in drone strikes by the United States in Yemen. There's been uh, an increase in drone strikes since the Trump administration came in. Let's not forget that Obama 
actually increased them exponentially over George W. Bush. Some of that was technological availability. Some of it was a desire to fight terrorism without putting U.S. lives in danger and thus all the political ramifications. But no, there, there hasn't been uh, open source reporting on, on U.S. boots on the ground. Uh, but that now that you say that, I want to talk about something else, which is what is the legality of killing from the sky with uh, with an unmanned drone? Some of you may remember Yemen was in the headlines about five years back when a U.S. citizen, Anwar al-Awlaki, Yemeni-American, born in the United States in New Mexico, uh, went back to Yemen uh, later in his life and uh, was eventually radicalized, knew some of the 9-11 hijackers who happened to go to his mosque in San Diego that he was the imam of, and eventually he leaves and goes back to Yemen and starts writing for Inspire magazine, which is an AQAP, Al-Qaeda publication. And he allegedly motivated uh, Major Nadal Hassan to, um, to kill those soldiers at Fort Hood. And eventually, President Barack Obama uh, authorized his assassination by a drone in Yemen. That raised a lot of questions, especially a few weeks later when Al-Laki's teenage son was killed in a second drone attack. And oh, by the way, his young seven-year-old daughter was killed in that raid where the Navy SEAL was killed early in Trump's administration. That makes three members of the Al-Laki family, at least two of which were American citizens killed without due process. I happen to think Anwar al-Awlaki, I read a book on this, I happen to think he's a pretty bad guy. I happen to think he absolutely wanted to motivate people to kill Americans within the United States and around the world. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't talk about the process of killing. The process of killing an American citizen, how should that work? You know, Al-Laki may have been a bad guy, but what about the Bill of Rights? Either we're a nation of laws or we're not. The way we treat people in a tough situation like that speaks to the actual strength of our laws or the lack thereof. And when President Obama in the executive branch makes a decision to assassinate an American citizen without judicial oversight, without the Department of Justice being involved, without congressional oversight, it's one branch of government exceeding its authority and assassinating an American citizen. And you know what's interesting to me is the only voice I heard yelling about this back in 2011 and 12 was a Republican, Rand Paul, who has been a brave voice for years questioning U.S. foreign policy abroad, questioning the War Powers Act, questioning the imperial presidency. And, uh, and he's one of the only ones. He's one of the only ones. In fact, he did a, a pretty long filibuster about this because he was concerned about the assassination of Anwar al-Awlaki. Because if the president can do that in Yemen, where else can he do it? If there's no oversight, if there's no magistrate, if there's no probable cause or no habeas corpus brought forward on his behalf, then it, it really raises questions about whether we could in fact assassinate an American citizen in the United States, and, and it really bothers me. So you asked that question about have there been boots on the ground? Well, not not in open source reporting since that Navy SEAL raid where the uh, the one Navy SEAL was uh, tragically killed. But we have to remember that there was probably a dozen uh, civilians killed in that raid as well. Yeah, their yeah, lives yeah. matter too, and one of them yeah. happened to be an American citizen, Alaki's young daughter. 
Well, this 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 disconnection that our our national security strategy is starting to take is it just means that we're going to be end up killing more and more people and not know about it. And it seemed to be the the theme of the Trump administration that or so far the theme of it that we're going to do what we want and we're going to do our very best to hide it from you. You know, like the the paragraph I earlier we were talking about, you know that it's there there aren't going to be many facts out in front to look at any of this stuff and the absolute horrific breadth of the of what I read about that raid in Yemen on the ground that it 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 I I feel there are some some operational questions there, you know, for a longer discussion a different day. Um but that we don't talk about exactly what you just mentioned. We'll say one U.S. service member was killed today, and also way down in the paragraph or way later, later this many civilians were killed. And again, who's looking at it? Who's deciding that? And, and who's? We all know that operations can go bad, and that if as long as you know, within terms of you know making your you know safety assessments and stuff like that. People they have to account for those kind of things. They have to account how dangerous it's going to be going in, and but with a drone, they don't have to account for any of that. It's just a bomb. It's just a bomb, and a drone. Who? How do you know whose drone it is? I mean, yes, right now it's probably ours, but within the next twenty years, you know, drone warfare is going to become very, very big. Eventually, it's just a faceless, nameless thing in the sky that decides that you get to die. I'm concerned of us about us finding out about all of them. About you know, it, it, there's so many remote areas in 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 the world, and sometimes explosions. You know, well, maybe they were terrorists. People, but nearby didn't didn't think too much about it. But just not enough caring about people, and it really burns me. Absolutely. It really does. And, and you know, like you said about these stories, you, you know, the headline's going to read, and it's only going to last for a day because we're going to get focused on another tweet soon after. But the headline usually reads, one U.S. Navy SEAL killed. Rightfully, it should be reported. It's a tragedy. And you're right, it's a footnote somewhere down in the report that, oh, by the way, 12 innocent civilians were killed as collateral damage. They just don't have the value. Yeah. There's an empathy, yeah. there's an empathy gap, and it's racial, and it's cultural, and it's religious, and I refuse to believe it's not because those lives clearly don't matter you know you, no. who is who in congress or or who in the united states is actually going to lobby what's the constituency for dead arabs it doesn't exist it doesn't exist nope. there's no lobby in the united states protecting those lives and it bothers me you know when i look at yemen it seems to me that the battle lines that are being drawn show that Yemen is coming apart like much of the rest of the Middle East. I talked about Kurdistan last week. I talked about how Syria is coming apart. Iraq is coming apart. How these colonial, you know, fantasy states are starting to come apart. The battle lines, the front line of the war in Yemen, which is essentially a stalemate right now, it looks suspiciously similar to the old North and South Yemen borders. And I challenge people to go look at the map of, uh, of the current front lines. Perhaps Yemen is coming apart in the same way that Iraq is, the same way that Syria is. This might be part of a wider regional fracturing in the Middle East along sectarian, Sunni Shia, and ethnic Arab Kurd, Arab Turk, Arab Persian. It seems that the region is coming apart. But to, to, to harp on it again and maybe to beat a dead horse, the humanitarian crisis is wild. 
Yemen was already the poorest Arab state before the war, which means it was highly vulnerable to chaos, highly vulnerable to humanitarian catastrophe. Oh, by the way, Yemen's running out of oil, which was its one major import, uh, its one major export, and its one major uh, import of funds into its GDP. 10,000 is the official civilian death toll under Saudi bombing right now. Of course, that doesn't sound like a whole lot, but based on populations, that's the equivalent of 150,000 dead Americans from the sky over the course of the next year. Famine, widespread. Children are dying of malnutrition. Cholera is spreading. The famine is so bad. And it's not just in Yemen. What uh, USAID folks, people who work in the development community, they're calling it the four famines. And they're all in the same region. Nigeria, Somalia, South Sudan, and Yemen. All four of them are undergoing a famine, major food shortages. When one area is struggling, it spreads to other areas across the Horn of Africa. And what is Saudi Arabia's strategy right now? They're going to blockade the ports that are under Houthi control. Remember what I said, three out of four Yemenis lives under Houthi control in the north and the west. The south and the east is primarily desert. Saudi Arabia is closing off those ports with a blockade. Uh, people are screaming. The alarm bells are going off uh, at, at the UN World Food Program in a lot of NGOs, Medicine Sans Frontiers, saying that a humanitarian catastrophe, the likes of which we can't even imagine, is going to occur if the Saudis do, in fact, close off these ports. When they do, if they do, and no matter how many people die in this famine and cholera outbreak, the sad reality is the United States is going to be complicit in it. Because if we are refueling Saudi jets in the skies above Yemen as they go on to their mission to bomb, we are just as complicit as those pilots. And we and, and if that is in our national interest, then someone needs to go to Congress and make an argument. And our legislators who represent the people should be there debating it, discussing it, and voting on it. If they vote that this is, in fact, in America's best interest, so be it. We could vote them out of office if we don't like that. But what really concerns me is the lack of public discussion. And what's done in our names, what's done in our names uh, bothers me. Uh, it keeps me up at night, quite frankly. Uh, I've seen enough, uh, you know, dead, I'm sure you have as well, dead faces uh, in Iraq uh, and in Afghanistan uh, that, that maybe didn't look like me and maybe he didn't have the same religion as me, but they looked pretty human to me. And, and, and they're still with me, those faces. And, uh, and there's a lot of them right now under major bombing from forces that we sell weapons to, that we refuel in the sky. As... Uh as Americans, like exactly what you're talking about, that this is, we're not even the first generation to have to deal with this kind of, you know, the, all the choices that are going on with this. But when will it be enough? When will, uh, when will human life matter that much from people that are different from us? Um, and I was the same. I was, I, I had the same thing. You know, these are people that have jobs or maybe they don't have jobs but they're trying to survive they're just people that are trying to make their way in the world and yeah no i i, I uh <laughs> fell over i almost lost my book sorry oh, okay so <laughs> i was about to read a quote okay. and then i just panicked as i was going up the... um so, that's thank god for editing yeah 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 that's it that saves us saves us a lot um but I think that right in there is a key into 
how maybe we could help this a little bit. I, one of the things that I tell myself if I was still in perfect health is that the job I would have these days would be an actual journalist, but I would want to go where people were. I would want to go and see what's actually happening in Yemen right now. And we, you know, we have kind of the faraway thing. Okay, it's a war zone. So CNN stands on the outside of the war zone and there's some bombs and there's the pretty lights and, oh, that was very presidential, but that's, you know, kind of the end of the discussion. Um, I think that uh, our connection to people in those areas, to people where we've had U.S. operations is really important. I think that they they have to fix their own areas. They have to, they're the ones that have to do it and we have to let them. We have to and be willing to remove our poisonous influence, whether that be from our physical bases, arms sales, you know, we don't even have a non-fighting humanitarian forces Americans. We don't have one. We don't have one, you know, we don't have a group of American peacekeepers. I don't even know if we contribute to UN peacekeepers. We just have we, we, troops. Yeah. We can we contribute a lot of money and uh, almost no uh, forces. If you look at the average UN mission, for example, in Africa, where there's a whole lot Almost all of the peacekeepers are from third world and developing countries. They may have American money funding the operations, but we do not put skin in the game. We're not willing to put our soldiers in a blue helmet uh, for the UN. And, and people notice. People notice that the UN forces in a lot of these countries are made up primarily of South Asians. We're talking India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, and uh, Africans from uh, regional forces like the African Union as well as the United Nations. And what's visibly absent is Western Caucasian faces. You don't see them. And I don't care how much money we provide, uh, that matters. It affects how we're viewed in these war-torn regions. You know, Chris, my last point that I really wanted to bring up about Yemen, and I'm pretty passionate about this, just like I am a lot of, uh, with a lot of conflicts in the Middle East that we're party to. Because just because we don't have a lot of troops on the ground doesn't mean we're not party to the reality of these wars. Doesn't mean we're not contributing to it. But what you said that was so resonating with me was this idea that people like you, people like I, who have been with these people and have a degree of empathy for, for Arabs, for Muslims, for people in the Middle East, maybe we're the voices the country needs to hear. Maybe the country needs to hear from sympathetic, clear-thinking veterans because if we show empathy and sympathy, even though we lost soldiers in this region, that gives us a degree of credibility and a platform and a voice that people trust. Because in this sad, sad American environment where the, nobody trusts any public institution anymore except the military, that's sad. It shouldn't be that way. But if it's going to be that way, let's make the most of it. And and let's get like-minded veterans and a few listeners out there. Call your congressman. Get involved. Talk about these things because you have a platform and you have credibility. People are, are apt to trust you and are apt to listen to what you have to say. And that gives you a, a very important responsibility to think cogently, uh, craft arguments, and maintain a degree of empathy. Because whether it's good or bad, our voices do resonate. And that gives us... a. A burden, I would say, of responsibility. I think the only other thought I would have about it is about um, I've been listening to uh, a Noam Chomsky book. I'm trying to think of the um, title right now, but um, he was going over the uh, the propaganda model and how we have lived it for so long and it's so ingrained into so many different institutions. Um, but specifically with media organizations. And so I think you're right. If we can be somewhat ground zero for, nope, I'm sorry, you're not giving us that bullshit again. 
this is what's actually going on there and and to put faces on people to not you know it's not just like uh see different videos of the coverage at standing rock and i remember there was you know like jordan sheraton from the young turks he was right there with the people talking to him and then you have in the distance i think he actually filmed it there's the cnn truck and they're over there they're outside the they're outside the um protest area but they're not talking to people they're not talking to both sides they're not actively involved in that it's supposed to be about people so if we can take that if we can take our experience and talk specifically to the warmongering nature that our country has gotten i think it could be very valuable but we need more voices we like you said we need lots and lots of people veterans non-veterans anybody who can talk about these issues and talk about the simplicity of not wanting to be bombed and care about the people that it's happening to and like you mentioned earlier there may be valid operations there may be times where people do end up dying and everything was done to ensure that the fewest casualties happen we need to make sure that that's few and far between if we can't find criticisms about those and when i say we i mean everybody um then we're really not doing our jobs as leaders and that's the biggest thing i think for veterans is that america is in dire need of leadership and not just presidential leadership or congressional leadership or military leadership they're in need of people leadership they're in need of people to say i have these experiences and i'm telling you this really hurts people and we need to do it a different way but if we're not willing to do that and we're not willing to really talk about these issues like you and i are people aren't going to care it's not that 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 empathy that we need to get across will not be there so these yemenis they they are they're people you know like you said these are people with a history of their own so my dork uh, nature gave you guys yemen 101 but it's important because these are people with a culture with a history that's just as valuable as ours and if we don't take the time and do our due diligence to study these issues, then how could we make a good decision? My last point is this, this all, this Yemen civil war and other civil wars across the region, we're going to talk about Syria in a future episode, I'm sure, or maybe in 10 future episodes for that issue. But this boils down to two things, and that's strategy and ethics. And they're related. I'll start with strategy. When it comes to Yemen, we have to avoid the Israel mistake. We have to avoid being so perceived as being on one side of the issue that we alienate the entire other side for 50 years now. And I know I'm touching the third rail of American foreign policy, but 50 years now, 60 years now, we've supported Israel to such an extent that the Arab world has been alienated. doesn't mean we should let Israel fall into the ocean or get overrun. It means we have to avoid the mistake of being partisan. And right now, we are on the Saudi side almost exclusively. We are now complicit in a collapsing failed state and we all know what happens with those it's going to breed yemen that is is going to breed hopeless displaced poverty-stricken young men for a generation the damage that's being done now is generational we may not know how much damage has been done until 10 or 15 years from now we have to remember strategy and ethics sometimes doing right is doing well Sometimes having the right ethics is in itself a good strategy because we have to care. Soldiers have to care. You know this. How Americans are viewed on the Arab street, quote unquote. How are we seen in a, in a chai shop in Baghdad or Riyadh or Cairo? Well, if we are complicit in the bombing of Yemeni civilians, you can bet 
that we may as well just slap made in the USA stickers on the, uh, the side of those bombs and Saudi aircraft because that's the way we're seen. What if the hawkish status quo, like this unending support of Saudi Arabia, what if that actually endangers our soldiers? I can't tell you how many times I was lectured about Israel and Palestine, how many times I was lectured about sanctions on Iraqi children during the 1990s. These people in the Arab world, they don't forget. They watch what America does the way you would watch a leader and strategy and ethics. And I see a problem strategically and I see a problem ethically with our support for Yemen. So this is what I'd say. I'd say educate yourselves, read a book, get Jenny Hill's book, uh, listen to this podcast, find other outlets for this, you know, educate yourself and get involved, whatever that means. If it's writing a letter, starting your own podcast, writing something, get it out there. And for the veterans that are listening, I know not all our listeners are veterans, but for those of you who are out there, remember that you have a platform. Use it for, use it for good. Uh, and I think that's really important. And please, if you guys have any thoughts about uh, about this subject, about any subject, you can uh, always always contact us. We're always interested in what you guys have to say, and certainly in new perspectives. You know, that's the whole reason that Danny and I started doing this is that we wanted to find new perspectives through the creation of the podcast, and we hope you guys can share that with us. Absolutely. Absolutely. Send an email with the topic you want us to talk about and we'll educate ourselves as best we can. And we'll, we'll give the one-on-one on that too, because uh, what's done in our name matters. That's my last point on that. Thank you for joining us today. Please come join the conversation at www.fortressonahill.com. You can also find us on Twitter at Fortress on a Hill or on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash Fortress on a Hill. We want to hear from our listeners about the topics and issues pertinent to America's military and veteran communities. And last but certainly not least, analyze your news and its sources very closely. Verify everything you read. And remember that no one, no matter how powerful, are above criticism, especially those with the power to send others into harm's way. We'll see you next time.